Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Stem Cells at Lunch Digested podcast. My name is Abigail, I'm a PhD student in the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine here at King's and today I'm excited to interview Professor Ludo van den Bosch. Professor van den Bosch has been a group leader at the Vlaams Institute for Biotechnology and professor at KU Leuven in Belgium since 2013. His research focuses on the mechanisms of neuronal degeneration with the objective of contributing to the development of new therapies for neurodegenerative disorders. And because of this, his lab studies several different kinds of motor neuron disease, including amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS. So thank you for joining us today, Ludo. And so to start off, I was wondering if you could just describe uh, the background of your research and what it is your lab actually does. Yeah, I think you already gave a, a very good summary. So we are indeed working on um, motor neuron disorders in general, and then ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis in particular. And our main goal is to model different aspects of the disease as good as possible. And for that, we use all kinds of models. Um, we have indeed these in vitro models, cell lines, but also these induced pluripotent stem cell uh, derived models. Uh, but we also use uh, fruit flies, zebra fish, mice, rats, uh, and also patient materials, so post-mortem material. Uh, the goal is, of course, to understand the disease as good as possible. And the hope is that by understanding what is going wrong, that we can, of course, uh, suggest therapeutic strategies to cure the disease. Right. So you mentioned these different animal models that you use. What exactly does each one contribute that the other one doesn't? That is indeed a very good question. I think there is not such a thing as a perfect model. Uh, whatever model you use, you have to realize that it has its limitations. Uh, in vitro models, that's very clear. You, you, you don't have the context. Then, yeah, with fruit flies, of course, yeah, you have the possibility that you can, um, yeah, that you can study genetic uh, effects because the genetics of the fruit fly is very well characterized. Zebrafish has the advantage that it's a vertebrate and that it mm -hmm. has a very nice motor system that you can easily visualize and study because these fish are transparent. Um, and then, of course, mice and rats are used very, very often in, in different contexts, um, as, as these are the models that people prefer to study before something is translated to uh, a human trial or to humans. Right. So I was wondering if perhaps you could maybe highlight uh, some obstacles that are facing scientists trying to cure ALS. What would you think the major obstacles are? Yeah, I think the major obstacle is, is that it's a very complicated disease. I think what we look at is uh, one disease. We think that ALS is, is, is one disease. Uh, when you look at the patient population, it's clear that there are different forms of the disease. You have people that get a disease quite early. Um, then you have people that get the disease very late in their life. Uh, you also have um, differences in disease duration. And I think the most famous example of that is Stephen Hawking, who also suffered from uh, ALS. And he suffered from the disease for more than 50 years, which is very uh, rare because most patients die within two to five years. So I think what we try to look at as one disease seems to be uh, maybe a group of different diseases. 
The other problem, I think, is that when we try to um, counteract the uh, problems that are associated with the disease, that we are usually relatively late. I mean, that, that patients, when they present in the clinic, that they already are in a far advanced state and that, well, everything you try at that moment is not working anymore, while in the models that we have in the lab, um, some of these therapies show very promising uh, results. So I think if we could diagnose the disease much earlier, because usually now it takes more than a year or a year or more than a year before a patient is diagnosed with uh, ALS after he presented for the first time in the hospital. So I think diagnosing as, as fast as possible after getting the first symptoms is very important to start the, the therapeutic interventions. And then yeah, from, from a, a lab point of view, of course, you always want to have more money. You always want to have more brilliant people in the lab that help you to, uh, to solve all, all the different uh, problems. Right. So do you think there's been much progress in identifying a genetic markers, perhaps, to predict whether somebody has a predisposition? There is there is a lot of pro. I mean, I'm now in the field for, for 25 years. Um, yeah, well, when people ask me, okay, did you make a difference? Then they, of course, hope that I can tell them that I found a therapeutic strategy that is translated into medication. And that is, uh, well, unfortunately, that's not the case. But on the other hand, I mean, when, when we started 25 years ago, we didn't know anything. We didn't know anything about the genetics. We didn't know anything about uh, the disease process. We had no models uh, that, that were um, reproducing some aspects of, of the disease. So if I look back now uh, and, and see what we have now in comparison to what we had 25 years ago, that's a huge difference. It's a completely different world. Um, and we know much more about disease as well. So we, we know what, what selective vulnerability uh, is and, and how it could be caused, why only the motor neuron system is affected in, in these patients and not all the other, other neurons. And then, indeed, from a genetic point of view, uh, in the majority of the familial patients, and by the way, one out of 10 ALS patients has uh, at least one other family member that also was diagnosed with ALS. There we know almost from all what the underlying genetic cause is. So that I think is a major, a major step forward that uh, yeah, is difficult to overestimate. And then also the, the genetic risk factors, I think we're also making a lot of progress there. So I think it's, uh, well, it's an exciting time for researchers. Unfortunately, it's not yet an exciting time for patients, but that's just a matter of time. Uh, so you mentioned before that you work with a lot of in vitro uh, stem cell models. Uh, is your research with stem cells just confined to disease modeling, or do you think there is also some curative potential with these stem cells? I'm looking at it just as, as a model system. Um, I don't think that we will ever be able to replace damaged motor neurons by stem cells. I hope I'm wrong, eh, by the way. Uh, and may, well, certainly not for, for motor neurons that have these very long axons that need to connect to, to the muscles. So. Um, I think it's very difficult to, to, to restore that. On the other hand, I think as a model, it has a, a unique uh, potential in the sense that this is patient material, um, which we can convert into first stem cells and then into whatever cell type we want to study. 
And the major advantage is that we don't have overexpression of the mutant genes. I think that most of the other models suffer from that disadvantage. In order to make a mouse sick, in order to make a zebrafish sick, you have to overexpress a mutated gene that causes ALS in, in the patients. That is not the case in these uh, iPSC-derived models, in these stem cell-derived models. So that, I think, is, is a major advantage. Another advantage, I think, which is underestimated uh, is that we indeed see early things that happen in the beginning of uh, the development and the uh, outgrowth of the motor neuron. So what we observe there could be something that also in patients occurs very early during the disease. And so I think the earlier you can intervene, the earlier you can counteract what is going wrong, I think the higher the chance will be that it will also make a difference for, uh, for patients. Right. So uh, do you think that in the future, maybe there'll be a shift towards uh, trying to help the body to heal on its own without uh, transplanting cells derived from stem cells, for instance? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not excluding that for a lot of diseases, uh, stem cell transplantations could indeed replace what is gone. Uh, I'm less optimistic, like I just said, for motor neurons, but that doesn't exclude that you can maybe change the environment. Maybe you can indeed, um, yeah, well, inject stem cells that are differentiated into the direction of non-neuronal cells that uh, secrete protective factors. So I think there are a lot of possibilities, and I think we are just at the start of uh, discovering what all these possibilities could be in terms of uh, therapies. Yeah. So if you could choose a particular era that you would like to be a scientist in, it would be this era now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and I and I'm I just want to say I'm not I'm not a stem cell specialist. So I just use the stem cell technology just in order to 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 teach me something about what is what is going wrong in patients or what could be potentially go wrong in these patients. Uh, nowadays we are just working with um, yeah human motor neurons in a dish. My dream is to, is to combine these motor neurons with other cell types and mm -hmm. to reconstitute something that is also present in, um, in the body so that you have some kind of a neuromuscular circuit with not only the motor neurons, but also with the muscle cells and that you can re yeah, recreate what is present in, in, in the body and also adding other cell types, the, the myelinating cells, the astrocytes, the immune system, the microglia, um, and then combine that with all the technology that is available these days with electrodes so that you can stimulate and record from these cells so that you really can see what is going wrong in the initial phase of, of the disease and, and and then the next step well that that's another thing we are exploring these days is that now we have these uh, stem cell derived cell types um, which we can culture in a dish uh, i would like to inject these cells again into animals just to see how they develop what the effects are of mutations what what the consequences are of being in in a normal environment so I think there is there are plenty of possibilities, and uh, I think combining the in vitro with the in vivo models could also I dealt in new step the long journey that we are already making. For sure, and and do you think that there's been a particular breakthrough in the last say decade 
that has really changed the way in which research into neurodegenerative diseases is conducted. The iPSCs, I think I already mentioned them. I think for us, it made a big difference. One thing I didn't mention yet, and I'm not sure where it will bring us, but like I said, uh, only... 10% 10% of patients have the uh, have a familial form, so there we know that there is a genetic cause. In 90% of cases, we have no clue whatsoever what the underlying uh, cause is. Is it the mixture of, of genetic uh, risk factors? Might also be environment, but for sure also aging plays, plays an uh, important role. And until now, we didn't have any possibility to model a sporadic disease. I mean, how do you start modeling a a sporadic disease if you don't know what the underlying causes are? So I think now we have cells from patients with sporadic, with a sporadic form of ALS, and we can try to figure out that what is going wrong in the familial form is also going wrong in the sporadic form. And that is, I think, a very unique thing that uh, we are still starting to explore. And uh, hopefully this will also lead to new insights. Yeah, just to wrap up a bit now, I just wanted to ask a few questions about what maybe what your favorite part is about being a scientist. Yeah, well, I I never did anything else, so I cannot compare with other (laughs) uh, professions. What I like most is to work with PhD students, with postdocs, with people that just start in research and to teach them, well, everything I know not only the technical aspects, but also everything else that is uh, related to research and to bring them from a student to a researcher with, with everything needed to make it in research. So I think that is what I enjoy most to discuss with them, to, to learn them how to do, also to learn from them, because I think it's a two-way process. I really, the interaction with PSE students with postdocs is what I like most. And then, of course, yeah, and that that I think will most people also tell you is the interaction with other scientists uh, around the world, which I think now with COVID is a bit more difficult to do that in, in uh, yeah in real, these kind of Zoom meetings. But that is, of course, also an aspect that I'm missing now and that I hope will come back soon to interact and to exchange ideas, to discuss uh, findings. But yeah, well, interaction with young people, that keeps me young and that keeps me happy on a daily basis. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming today. And I look forward to your seminar later. Okay. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Mm -hmm.